Section twenty seven of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume Two. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section twenty seven caesar conquers gaul b c fifty eight to fifty by napoleon the third part one in caesar's military performances the gallic wars plays the most important part as shown in his commentaries his sole extant literary work and almost the only authority for this part of roman history cisalpine gaul that portion lying on the southern or italian side of the alps came partly under the dominion of rome as early as b c two hundred eighty two when a roman colony was founded at senna gallica this division of gaul was wholly conquered by b c one hundred ninety one and in b c forty three having been made a roman province it became a part of italy transalpine gaul that part laying north and northwest of the alps from rome comprised in caesar's day three divisions aquitaine to the southwest celtic gaul in the middle and belgic gaul to the northwest the region was inhabited by various tribes having neither unity of race nor of customs whereby nationality becomes distinguished towards the close of the second century b c the romans made their first settlements in transalpine gaul in the southeastern part at the time when caesar became proconsul in gaul b c fifty eight the province was in state of tranquillity but fortune seemed determined that he should have great opportunities for the display of his military genius and when asia had been subdued by pompey quote, conferred what remained to be done in europe upon caesar end quote the attempt of the helvetii to leave their homes in the alps for new dwelling-places in gaul served him as an occasion for war as they were crossing the arar now saon he attacked and routed them later defeated them again and at last drove them back to their own country the story of the long war with its various campaigns has become familiar to the world's readers through the masterly account of caesar himself known to every schoolboy who advances to the dignity of classical studies in the end the country between the pyrenees and the rhine was subjugated and for several centuries it remained a roman province at the time when the history is taken up in the following narrative by napoleon the third the great rebellion b c fifty two had sustained a heavy blow in the surrender of alicia and the capture of the heroic chief and leader of the insurrection vercingetorix whom caesar exhibited in his triumph at rome b c forty six and then caused to be put to death the distinguished author of the article says he wrote quote, for the purpose of proving that when providence raises up such men as caesar charlemagne and napoleon it is to trace out to peoples the path they ought to follow to stamp with the seal of their genius a new era and to accomplish in a few years the work of many centuries end quote. 
The work was prepared, wide manual of historical literature, Adams, with the utmost care, a care which extended in some instances to special surveys, to ensure perfect accuracy in the descriptions, etc. The capture of Alicia and that of Vercingetorix, in spite of the united efforts of all Gaul, naturally gave Caesar hopes of a general submission, and he therefore believed that he could leave his army during the winter to rest quietly in its quarters, from the hard labors which had lasted without interruption during the whole of the past summer. But the spirit of insurrection was not extinct among the Gauls, and convinced by experience that whatever might be their number, they could not in a body cope with troops inured to war. They resolved, by partial insurrections raised on all points at once, to divide the attention and the forces of the Romans as their only chance of resisting them with advantage. Caesar was unwilling to leave them time to realize this new plan, but gave the command of his winter quarters to his quaestor, Mark Antony, quitted Bibracti on the day before the calends of January, the 25th of December, with an escort of cavalry, joined the 13th legion, which was in winter quarters among the Bitteriges, not far from the frontier of the Aldui, and called to him the 11th legion, which was the nearest at hand. Having left two cohorts of each legion to guard the baggage, he proceeded towards the fertile country of the Bitteriges, a vast territory, where the presence of a single legion was insufficient to put a stop for, to the preparations for insurrection. His sudden arrival in the midst of men without distrust, who were spread over the open country, produced the result which he expected. They were surprised before they could enter into the Opidae, for Caesar had strictly forbidden everything which might have raised their suspicion, especially the application of fire, which usually betrays the sudden presence of an enemy. Several thousands of captives were made. Those who succeeded in escaping sought in vain a refuge among the neighboring nations. Caesar, by forced marches, came up with them everywhere, and obliged each tribe to think of its own safety before that of others. This activity held the populations in their fidelity, and through fear engaged the wavering to submit to the conditions of peace. Thus, the Bitteriges, seeing that Caesar offered them an easy way to recover his protection, and that the neighboring states had suffered no other chastisement than that of having to deliver hostages, did not hesitate in submitting. The soldiers of the 11th and 13th legions had, during the winter, supported with rare constancy the fatigues of every difficult marches in intolerable cold. To reward them, he promised to give by way of prize money two hundred sesterti to each soldier and two thousand to each centurion. He then sent them into their winter quarters and returned to Bibracti, after an absence of forty days. While he was there, dispensing justice, the Bitteriges came to implore his support against the attacks of Carnutes. Although it was only eighteen days since he returned, he marched again at the head of two legions, the sixth and the fourteenth, which had been placed on the Sano to ensure the supply of provisions. 
on his approach to Carnutes, taught by the fate of others, abandoned their miserable huts, which they had erected on the site of their burgs and oppida, destroyed in the last campaign, and fled in every direction. Caesar, unwilling to expose his soldiers to the rigor of the season, established his camp at Genabum, Gien, and lodged them partly in the huts which had remained undestroyed, partly in tents under penthouses covered with straw. The cavalry and auxiliary infantry were sent in pursuit of the Carnutes, who, hunted down everywhere and without shelter, took refuge in the neighboring counties. After having dispersed some rebellious meetings and stifled the germs of an insurrection, Caesar believed that the summer would pass without any serious war. He left, therefore, at Genabum, the two legions he had with him, and gave the command of them to C. Tribonius. Nevertheless, he learned by several intimations from the Remi that the Pelovaki and neighboring peoples, with Corius and Commius at their head, were collecting troops to make an inroad on the territory of Suicides, who had been placed, since the campaign of 1697, under the dependence of the Remi. He considered that he regarded his interest as well as his dignity in protecting allies who had deserved so well of the Republic. He again drew the Eleventh Legion from its winter quarters, sent written orders to C. Fabius, who was encamped in the country of the Remi, to bring into that of the Suicides the two legions under his command, and demanded one of his legions from Labienus, who was at Besançon. Thus, without taking any rest himself, he shared the fatigues among the legions by turns, as far as the position of the winter quarters and the necessities of the war permitted. When this army was assembled, he marched against the Bellovaki, established his camp on their territory, and sent cavalry in every direction in order to make some prisoners, and learn from them the designs of the enemy. The cavalry reported that the immigration was general, and that the few inhabitants who were to be seen were not remaining behind in order to apply themselves to agriculture, but to act as spies upon the Romans. Caesar, by interrogating the prisoners, learned that all the Bellovaci able to fight had assembled on one spot, and that they had been joined by the Ambiani, the Aulerci, the Salites, the Veliocasses, and the Atribates. Their camp was in a forest on a height, surrounded by marshes, Mont St. Mark, in the forest of Campagne. Their baggage had been transported to more distant woods. The command was divided among several chiefs, but the greater part obeyed Coerus, on account of his well-known hatred of the Romans. Commius had a few days before gone to seek succor from the numerous Germans, who lived in great numbers in the neighboring counties probably those on the banks of the Meuse. The Bellovaki resolved with one accord to give Caesar battle, if, as report said, he was advancing with only three legions, for they would not run the risk of having afterward to encounter his entire army. If, on the contrary, the Romans were advancing with more considerable forces, they proposed to keep their positions and confine themselves to intercepting, by means of ambuscades, the provisions and forage, which were very scarce at that season. 
This plan, confirmed by many reports, seemed to Caesar full of prudence and altogether contrary to the usual rashness of the barbarians. He took, therefore, every possible care to dissimulate as to the number of his troops. He had with him the seventh, the eighth, and ninth legions, composed of old soldiers of tried valor, and the eleventh, which formed of picked young men who had gone through eight campaigns, deserved his confidence. Although it could not be compared with the others, with regard to bravery and experience in war, in order to deceive the enemy by showing them only three legions, the only number they were willing to fight, he placed the seventh, eighth, and ninth in one line, while the baggage, which was not very considerable, was placed behind under the protection of the eleventh legion, which closed the march. In this order, which formed almost a square, he came unawares in sight of the Belovaki. At the unexpected view of the legions, which advanced in order of battle and with a firm step, they lost their courage, and, instead of attacking, as they had engaged to do, they confined themselves to drawing themselves up before their camp, without leaving the height. A volley, deeper than it was wide, separated the two armies. On account of this obstacle, and the numerical superiority of the barbarians, Caesar, though he had wished for battle, abandoned the idea of attacking them, and placed his camp opposite that of the Gauls in a strong position. He caused it to be surrounded with a parapet twelve feet high, surmounted by accessory works proportioned to the importance of the retrenchment, and preceded by a double fosse fifteen feet wide, with a square bottom. Towers of three stories were constructed from distance to distance, and united together by covering bridges, the exterior parts of which were protected by hurdle work. In this manner, the camp was protected not only by a double fosse, but also by a double row of defenders, some of whom, placed on the bridges, could from this elevated and sheltered position throw their missiles farther and with a better aim, while the others, placed on the vallum nearer to the enemy, were protected by the bridges from the missiles which showered down upon them. The entrances were defended by means of higher towers and were closed with gates. These formidable retrenchments had a double aim, to increase the confidence of the barbarians by making them believe that they were feared, and next to allow the number of the garrison to be reduced with safety when they had to go far for provisions. For some days there were no serious engagements, but slight skirmishes in the marshy plain, which extended between the two camps. The capture, however, of a few foragers, did not fail to swell the presumption of the barbarians, which was still more increased by the arrival of Commius, although he had brought only five hundred German cavalry. The enemy remained for several days shut up in its impregnable position. Caesar judged that an assault would cost too many lives, and investment alone seemed to him opportune, but it would require a greater number of troops. He wrote thereupon to Trebonius to send him as soon as possible the thirteenth legion, which, under the command of T. Sixtius, was in winter quarters among the Bitruges. 
to join it with the sixth and the fourteenth, which the first of these lieutenants commanded at Gennabum, and to come himself with three these legions by forced marches. During this time he employed the numerous cavalry of the Remi, the Lingones, and the other allies, to protect the foragers and to prevent surprises. But this daily service, as is often the case, ended by being negligently performed. And one day the Remi, pursuing the Bellovaki with too much ardor, fell into an ambuscade. In withdrawing, they were surrounded by foot soldiers in the midst of whom Vertiscus, their chief, met with his death. True to his Gaulish nature, he would not allow his age to exempt him from commanding and mounting on horseback, although he was hardly able to keep his seat. His death and this feeble advantage raised the self-confidence of the barbarians still more, but it rendered the Romans more circumspect. Nevertheless, in one of the skirmishes which were continually taking place within sight of the two camps, about the fordable places of the marsh, the German infantry, which Caesar had sent for from beyond the Rhine, in order to mix them with the cavalry, joined in a body, boldly crossed the marsh, and meeting with little resistance, continued the pursuit with such impetuosity that fear seized not only the enemy who fought, but even those who were in reserve. Instead of availing themselves of the advantages of the ground, all fled in a cowardly manner. They did not stop until they were within their camp, and some even were not ashamed to fly beyond it. This defeat caused a general discouragement, for the Gauls were as easily daunted by the last reverse as they were made arrogant by the smallest success. Day after day was passing in this manner, when Caesar was informed of the arrival of C. Tribonius and his troops, which raised the number of his legions to seven. The chiefs of the Bellovaci then feared an investment like that of Alesia, and resolved to quit their position. They sent away by night the old men, the infirm, the unarmed men, and the part of the baggage which they had kept with them. Scarcely was this confused multitude in motion, embarrassed by its own mass and its numerous chariots, when daylight surprised it, and the troops had to be drawn up in line before the camp to give the column time to move away. Caesar saw no advantage either in giving battle to those who were in position, nor, on account of the steepness of the hill, in pursuing those who were making their retreat. He resolved, nevertheless, to make two legions advance in order to disturb the enemy in its retreat. Having observed that the mountain on which the Gauls were established was connected with another height, Mont Colette, from which it was only separated by a narrow valley, he ordered bridges to be thrown across the marsh. The legions crossed over them, and soon attained the summit of the height, which was defended on both sides by abrupt declivities. There he collected his troops and advanced in order of battle up to the extremity of the plateau, whence the engines placed in battery could reach the masses of the enemy with their missiles. The barbarians rendered confident by the advantage of their position were ready to accept battle if the Romans dared to attack the mountain. Besides, they were afraid to withdraw their troops successively, 
as if divided, they might have been thrown into disorder. This attitude led Caesar to resolve upon leaving twenty cohorts under arms, and on tracing a camp on this spot and retrenching it. When the works were completed, the legions were placed before the retrenchments, and the cavalry distributed with their horses bridled at the outposts. The Balovaki had recourse to a stratagem in order to effect their retreat. They passed from hand to hand the fascines and the straw on which, according to the Gaulish custom, they were in the habit of sitting, preserving at the same time their order of battle, placed them in front of the camp, and towards the close of the day, on a preconcerted signal, set fire to them. Immediately a vast flame concealed from the Romans the Gaulish troops who fled in haste. Although the fire prevented Caesar from seeing the retreat of the enemy, he suspected it. He ordered his legions to advance, and sent the cavalry in pursuit, but he marched slowly in fear of some stratagem, suspecting the barbarians to have formed the design of drawing the Romans to disadvantageous ground. Besides, the cavalry did not dare to ride through the smoke and flames, and thus the Belovaki were able to pass over a distance of ten miles, and halt in a place strongly fortified by nature, Mont Ganelon, where they pitched their camp. In this position they confined themselves to placing cavalry and infantry in frequent ambuscades, thus inflicting great damage on the Romans when they went to forage. After several encounters of this kind, Caesar learned by a prisoner that Coreus, chief of the Bellovaci, with a six thousand picked infantry and one thousand horsemen, was preparing an ambuscade in places where the abundance of corn and forage was likely to attract the Romans. In consequence of this information, he sent forward the cavalry, which was always employed to protect the foragers and joined with them some light-armed auxiliaries, while he himself, with a greater number of legions, followed them as closely as possible. The enemy had posted themselves in a plain, that of Chossi Aubac, of about one thousand paces in length, and the same in breadth, surrounded on one side by forests, and on other by a river which was difficult to pass, the Aisne. The cavalry becoming acquainted with the designs of the Gauls, and feeling themselves supported, advanced resolutely in squadrons toward this plain, which was surrounded with ambushes on all sides. Coreus, seeing them arrive in this manner, believed the opportunity favorable for the execution of his plan, and began by attacking the first squadrons with a few men. The Romans sustained the shock without concentrating themselves in a mass on the same point, which, says Hirtius, usually happens in cavalry engagements, and leads always to a dangerous confusion. There, on the contrary, the squadrons, remaining separated, fought in detached bodies, and when one of them advanced, its flanks were protected by the others. Coreus then ordered the rest of his cavalry to issue from the woods. An obstinate combat began on all sides, without any decisive result, until the enemy's infantry, debouching from the forest in close ranks, forced the Roman cavalry to fall back. 
the lightly armed soldiers who preceded their legions placed themselves between the squadrons and restored the fortune of the combat after a certain time the troops animated by the approach of the legions and the arrival of caesar and ambitious of obtaining alone the honour of the victory redoubled their efforts and gained the advantage the enemy on the other hand were discouraged and took to flight but were stopped by the very obstacles which they intended to throw in the way of the romans a small number nevertheless escaped through the forest and crossed the river Coreus, who remained unshaken under this catastrophe, obstinately refused to surrender, and fell, pierced with wounds. After this success, Caesar hoped that if he continued his march, the enemy in dismay would abandon his camp, which was only eight miles from the field of battle. He therefore crossed the Isni, though not without great difficulties. End of section 27